He's Achille Nazuri. I'm Reggie Bailey. This is Books of Pop Culture. Achille, how you feeling? I'm feeling good, man. Uh, it is a, uh, I know this won't come out today, but it is a hollow day. It is January 5th, also known as J5. It is the day that my fraternity, the greatest fraternity known to God and man and woman, of course, and woman, um, was 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 conceived and so um i'm feeling great i'm feeling blessed uh highly favored because many are called few are chosen uh to be members of kappa alpha psi fraternity incorporated um the frats are nice they named it twice um yeah so i'm feeling good i even i even showered before this show um because i whoa. have you know i got things to do in places whoa to be. Um, <laughs> i don't know if you guys are lit are looking and you can tell but I am like Reggie, freshly showered, and I Amen. would I would like to say I do shower. I just generally don't shower before the show, just in case that's possibly out there. <laughs> Are you an occasional shower or a regular shower? Regular shower. Okay, I, I'm not cool. we gotta we gotta Simone, make that. <laughs> we, <laughs> we gotta we gotta make that clear too, man. Yes, um, yes, yes. So. Thank you to the fellowship, first and last time viewers, first and last time listeners, and everyone in between, because you can be anywhere in the world right now, but you're here with us, and that's something we do not take lightly, so thank you truly. We appreciate you. Um, there's many places where you can locate books of pop culture. There's YouTube, there's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, you name it, we're there, right? And now in those places, you can do things that we like, such as subscribe, follow, like, comment, download leave a review and of course you can share 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 with friends enemies frenemies people who you're thinking about placing those labels on your family right and of course your digital communities there's always an easy share button that you see wherever you're watching whether it's youtube or if you're listening on your podcast network so share 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 and you may have noticed i shout out the fellowship first and that's because that is books of our culture's amazing patreon community it's one that Achille and i but biasly and objectively believe to be the best in bookish communities um, by joining the fellowship you support the most dynamic of duos in the bookish landscape you receive access to bonus bapc content each month uh such as our episodes where we discuss a lot of pop culture and a little bit of books you get access also to our discord where we discuss a whole lot of books and a little bit of pop culture and you get us one step closer to doing books pop culture for a living that can be done going to patreon.com slash books of pop culture. Achille, we have a special guest today. A very special episode ahead of us, man. I'm, I'm excited for this one. Same, same. I'm super excited for this one. Uh, and, and because it's a little bit different, you know, uh, yeah. for, for, for you. Uh, and I'm excited to see how it touched you. Yeah, man. Yeah, it is different for me. Indeed. Yeah. Um, our guest, I feel the need to say this because this is, I think, the first black person who I think I've been able to say this about a native okay. of Phoenix, Arizona. Right? Mm. That is, I do not know. This is the first black person I've ever, ever met who has said they are from Phoenix, Arizona personally. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, well, I, I'll see how the, per, I, when the person from your neck of the woods, then Phoenix, then back to your neck of the woods, technically, but like, nah, the what okay. for, if you go to the website, it says a native of Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, okay. I'll go crisscross in the crisscross. Nah, it's fine, yeah. I think, I think the born, the born might have been east, but still, I'm going off the website. 
Okay. All right. All right. So that's the choice that was made. Mm-hmm. Um, but an alumna, <laughs> speaking of my neck of the woods, an alumna of Old Dominion, shout out to Norfolk, uh, where she is Wherever. the current director of quality enhancement plan initiatives um, and also an alumna of Bennington College. Uh, Kave Conum, I hope I got that right. Correct me if I'm wrong when I bring you up. A Kave Conum mm-hmm. fellow, fellow and an Afrolatian poet. This I, I've seen that word a little bit more uh, lately. I kind of oh, like how wow. um, how black people are like making Appalachian R's, you know what I'm saying, with Afrolatian. That's kind of yeah. cool. Um, yes. So her work has been published in the New York Times, the Writer's Chronicle, New Letters, Callaloo, Essence in other journals, right? And is the author of multiple books such as Conversion, which won the Naomi Long Magic Poetry Award, What We Ask of Flesh, which was shortlisted for the Hurston Wright Award, and Starlight and Error, which won the Diode Editions Book Award. Our guest today is Ramika Bingham Risher, and we'll be talking to her about Soul Culture, which is her prose debut after this quick break. So, Ramika, I want to thank you on air um, for what I'm going to call your your digital hospitality, you know, um, because um, this this I can I think it's safe to say this has been in the works for a while. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes it's, you know, getting different people to come here uh, just equals different processes. Right. And I will say that um, that yours was very pleasant. Um, and I want to thank you for that on air publicly. So anyone who listens to this knows that Ramika is a very pleasant individual, at least in my experience. If if, if I'm going to assume if she wasn't a pleasant individual, that it was your fault. That, mm, yeah. I'm, not, yeah, I'm not blaming anybody <laughs> for how things went down outside or whatever. But I mean, you guys are you guys are wonderful, and I just don't even know how you ju- you know this whole uh, book tour event has been much larger uh you know i'm a poet so um writing in prose and writing a memoir has kind of changed the scope um of of you know how much the book is seen so just Mm -hmm. you know trying to get with folks and make sure that you know um i'm having conversations that i want to have as opposed to conversations that other folks want me to have i'm willing to be as flexible as as needed to make sure i get to sit with the folks i want to sit with so i just i thank y'all really Thank you. Thank yeah. you. And um, I will also ask this because, you know, your, your book had several, plenty of, of, of fun moments. And I'm asking a question that is inspired by your daughter, Sansa Ray. Ooh, right? okay. So I would like I would like to know out of Reggie Bailey and I'm going to say Jared Woods because I have to give myself an unfair Jared advantage. Jared P. Woods, right? Yeah. Um. Who has the more poetic name? Because apparently oh. Sansa Ray has a more poetic name than Michael. But I want to yeah. see, uh, I feel like a killing the Zuri, you know, I'm, I'm going government name for government name here. I ain't going right. with. That was I a good move. I could, I could give move. myself, you know, a, a nice poetic other name. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. Reggie Bailey or Jared Woods, which is, which is the more poetic name? And I would say my real name is Reginald. Ooh, Reginald, okay. Reginald P. Reginald. Bailey. Reginald P. Bailey. Oh, now it's Reginald P. Because I was Jared P. I mean, I'm right. just trying to. He P, was like, P I'm for, at least gonna get these initials in here. P, P for poetry. Four footing. P for poetry. You know what's interesting is, you know, uh, Reginald Bailey and I have the same initials, R and B. 
I mean, it's mm. smooth, it's rhythm, it's blue. I mean, mm. how you can't be more poetic than that. I'm sorry, Jared. So I, mean, I, I have to side with Reggie on this one. I got to I mean, side tough. with Reggie Bailey being a more poetic name. I actually, you know, what's interesting is I'm, you know, reading, fi- hey, this is right up your alley. I'm reading fiction, you know, just more and more. You know, I wrote a novel a few a few summers ago and I'm, you know, we'll see whatever happens. Don't be excited yet. For real. And so, <laughs> so, um, but interestingly enough, like I'm listening to like uh, men's names particularly. And I think Reggie Bailey would be a name that I would, that I would throw in as like one of my male characters in a, in a novel. I absolutely would. Jared, Akili okay. Missouri. If he would have won with non-government names, Akili Missouri would have won every time. Okay. All right. All right. That's cool. That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> hey, man. You know, I was just, I was just bored with a poetic name, brother. Right. What can I say? What can, what can <laughs> I mean, and really, like, Akili Missouri is cheating because all the vowel sounds, like, if that's not poetic, I don't know what it is, the assonance in there. Anyway. Yeah, man. Yes, yes. That's a good question. Bo- both, of our names, both of our names are Patrick. The P stands for Patrick. Stop that. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, we we learned it. Did that freak y'all out? We're not poets like that. That little thing would have freaked me out. Like what? Yeah, and we learned we learned it on air too, which was like even crazier. Yeah, like we were just talking about names and like, oh yeah, you know, I I don't know who said Patrick first, but the other one instantly was like, oh yeah, for real. (laughs) (laughs) Are they family names? Like, or did you know parents just decide, hey, we love this this sounds yours as a family name, Patrick. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know where my comes know. from. Honestly. Interesting. Yeah. That's yeah. wild. You all were meant to be. Meant to be besties. <laughs> yes, that's what we like to think, you know. Yeah. When we're walk having those long walks in the park and right. uh, talking about the Skipping songs that we like. Yeah, I say <laughs> you were meant to be. That's not what happens. Okay. <laughs> hey, he says it every day. I just I'm like, yeah, man, you're right. You know, you're yeah. right. Meant to be. <laughs> so that's yes. a good question. Santa Ray will be very happy that she inspired rivalries all over the, the yes. book. Yes, yeah, of course. She'll be happy. How are you doing genuinely? genuinely um, when we say genuinely, yes, if you have trap mm-hmm. gas, let us right. know. Um, right. If it's too hot there, let us know. How are you doing genuinely? Oh, those are such good questions. All right. So to begin the therapy session, just kidding. Um, no trap gas for me today. That's exciting. Okay. Um, I will say, you see, I'm in my office. People will not know what time it is, but where I am in North Virginia, it's like 7:30. It's late. Like everybody's gone from campus and I'm here. I had to bring my dinner with me to eat it before the show. Cause if I tried to eat after our session, trap gas all over the place. Yes. For me and the acid reflux, we'd have had a problem. So I prep for this, you know what I mean? So I'm feeling pretty good right now no no real issues you know back not locking up on me you know i've been i've been doing pretty good at the gym in the morning so you know we're doing all right so i feel good today i feel good and um oh i love this question today especially um what is the most important lesson you have learned about the business of writing right and and one thing I guess I do want you to consider in this is the fact that this is your first book of prose, right? You've put out numerous books of poetry already, right? I believe I went over three in the, yep. in, uh, in the description mm-hmm. um, or the bio, I should say. Yep. But now you've put out the book of prose and you already alluded to like, hey, you know, the, the, the book tour is a little more 
this time around as a result of that right mm -hmm. um and there are even other questions i'll ask about that like later but yeah. what is the most important lesson you've learned about the business of writing oh you know i mean it's interesting two things come to mind and probably because of the way we started off the conversation one is you know this ain't this is not a business lesson but for real like people just need to know it and hold it close just be kind to people like it just gets you so much further everywhere you go it helps if that's genuinely your disposition right like see not faking it i'm genuinely a, you know a pretty kind person um because i just like kind people but if you are just kind to people like no matter where you meet them no matter you know what your experience is just gets you so much further i have found that to be um kind of my saving grace in so many of these conversations that i'm having with folks whether it's agents or editors or uh you know folks that are um, scheduling events, et cetera. So just, you know, people that are reading the book, like people like read your book and then reach out to you. And then sometimes tell me, wow, people are usually so mean when I reach out. And I'm like, who, who is writing a book and not being kind to somebody who says, thanks for writing the book. I just, I don't know. I just don't understand that kind of ego. Um, but so that, that's kind of like a life lesson, a home training lesson, right? Like just be kind. Right. Um, but the other thing that I've learned was something that I did not expect at all. Um, so I, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on all of this stuff, but Soul Culture was never a book that I meant to write in this way. Um, I was doing interviews with writers that I loved. I absolutely thought about compiling those interviews at a certain point, And I thought that would be like the book, right? Um, and run along, run along. When I acquired an agent, uh, which is a whole nother story that we can talk about too, um, and realized, she, you know, she said to me real frankly, like, you know, I, I love your work. Um, interviews don't sell. So we're going to have to rewrite this whole thing, period. Right. Um, so we, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, there were little, there were little essays, but they were kind of craft essays. It was like, I love Patricia Smith. I love what she does with persona. I'm gonna write this craft essay about Patricia Smith. But what happened was, you know, I was writing, um, like little personal anecdotes at times. Um, and those were the things that kept shining through. And here's the business lesson that came through when I finally settled in with Beacon and my wonderful, wonderful editor, Haley Lynch. Um, she said to me, you know, the black women woman's interior voice is something we never get to hear enough so that is what you should lean into i just thought what the heck like people want to hear like my opinion of these writers like you know i thought i was writing a book that was like you know to hold up my elders and i hope that in many ways that i, I did that as well um but the lesson that i learned is your unique voice is something that everyone needs. Yeah. So the thing that you might think is like the thing that you might have to tamp down or shy away from, you should probably play into that because that's what makes your voice interesting. So that's my other business lesson, I think. So um, thank thank you for that, uh, Ramika, because I, I love so much um, of what you just said, right? So the I'm going to respond first to this be kind thing and about the ego uh part which you mentioned right because i recently uh came across a quote about like the ego you must you you must have right and the contradictory nature of it 
like when you're a writer, right? You, yeah. You're supposed to, I'm, I'm a butcher it, right? But I'm gonna just say my interpretation of it. You basically are supposed to have like the humility to understand that like, you know, someone picking up your book and reading it is like, kind of like the ultimate compliment especially now right with all the different forms of content that are available all different forms of entertainment whatever you want to say that are available to people and better said all different forms of storytelling that are available to people right but then you also have to be like super confident to feel like yo out of all these forms of storytelling that exist you need to read my shit (laughs) you know what i'm saying um so i wonder if I guess more of that exists in some people than the humility part. And that's probably why you get kind of those unkind run-ins. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, and I could go on and on about that, but yeah. then I also like what you said about the literary agent because, yeah. um, you know, and shout out to your agent in, in the uh, advice and everything. Right. Um, and, and I, and I say that because, you know, we've, read some like really cool like stories just trying to be on top of book news and everything and one thing that we've learned um and we just understand the industry a lot better because of it is just this idea of the agent as your first editor oh my goodness right and and you just spoke like directly to that message that's been Uh um just fed to us throughout like all the news clippings and all that so yes oh yes I mean, two things. We'll start. We'll start backwards, and then we'll we'll circle back because I I just need to say her name in a space anytime I can. So Larissa Mello Piankowski is a fantastic um, agent, uh, editor, uh, confidant, uh, cheerleader, <laughs> all the things. Um, and I was really careful about who I sent my work to. You know, it was like a two or three month kind of narrowing period before I sent to any agent. Right? Like I did some hardcore research. Uh, and I think that helps. And I think folks that are on their journey should maybe think about that too, because you're going to have to work with this person like an editor. And then <laughs> this person is also going to be, you know, your business caretaker for years, <laughs> you know, if the relationship is good and if the work is coming. Like, so that's really important, um, you know, to have someone that you you know, you can like really trust with your work. And somebody like me who, you know, knew that I, I was coming into this thing with one book of prose and I'm a poet, I might just jump back. You know, and poetry is not something that many agents are interested in looking at at all, right? You know, it's not uh, yeah. terribly lucrative. I don't know if you know this, but I am a poet, yeah, yeah. right? Like, so we, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we don't make a whole lot. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, that generally, you know, agents, they're working off a commission. So they like, I like, mm-hmm. how are we going to do this? Like, your talent is great and everything, but I need to, like, pay rent. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, I went in understanding, like, I'm interested in prose. This is my primary genre. You have to be willing to like work with me in all of these um, forms. Um, and so that was another thing that I was very careful about, like somebody who had already expressed an interest in, um, and a real reverence for, for poetry, like even in their write-up, like all agents have kind of a a manuscript wish list and kind of like write-ups. And I was looking for people who specifically mentioned poetry in their write-up, not to mention um, agents of color. So that means the pool went from, you know, thousands to hundreds real fast, (laughs) right? And it wasn't even really hundreds, right? It was probably a hundred, um, you know, out of the thousands of agents. Um, and so, you know, there were plenty of things that I used to narrow. Um, and, and, and when I finally kind of went 
on my journey and started submitting soul culture to agents of the, you know, 10 that I submitted to, I probably heard back from all of them. I had requests from, um, if not all, at least more than half. Right. So it was a, so that two or three months that I spent really narrowing and doing the work to find people that I know would be interested in the work, it paid off. Right. So that's another thing. Like people just get so excited to send their work out in the world that they don't do the work to find out who might be interested in it. And then it's soul crushing. You're like, I sent it a thousand people and nobody said anything because then people ain't reading what you're writing. They're not interested in your voice. You got to look Mm -hmm. for the people who are. Now, to piggyback on that, let's go back to ego. And so, you know, I, I, th- I absolutely think as a writer, you know, you have, <laughs> uh, you have to be bolstered with confidence, <laughs> right? Um, but I don't know, I will tell you this, for me, my own experience, I don't know if it's that I think my story is so important that folks need to read it, but I know I love reading lots of stories. Like there are so many things that arrest me. Now I know my drop in the bucket can easily be something that will arrest someone who likes reading lots of stories. You know, I've always been a voracious reader, right? You know, I always have, you see these bookshelves behind me Uh, and this is just my office. So you know what my house is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, (laughs) come on, I see y'all. I mean, and you know, and everything, like I see how expansive these bookshelves are behind you as well in every genre, um, right? And so- You know, I know, you know, if I can find 30 books a year to love, then somebody could find my book and think this is one of the books that they might, you know, really dig for the year or for the day or whatever. Right. So I don't know um, if it's that so many of us were like, my story is the most important story. That absolutely was not the case with, with soul culture. I didn't think my life is so interesting. I have to write a memoir. I laughed because I never imagined I was writing a memoir until I was writing one. Right. Um, So my story wasn't even like central. Right. It was not the thing. Um, And even as a poet, you know, oftentimes, you know, it's like every other book I'll write about myself. Um, You know, right now I just I just finished exclusive. I just turned in my my manuscript to uh, my editor last week (laughs) It was my deadline for the next book that'll be out in spring 2024. Um, And it's a book of poems. um, And it's you know, the whole journey has been just beyond my wildest dreams, but it's a book about my grandmothers. You know, for a long time, I wasn't even in the book. I stopped the book, <laughs> you know, when my mother was born. So, you know, for a long time, like I was out of it. So for interestingly enough, you know, ego in the traditional sense, you know, isn't always the driver for the thing that you're called to write, right? But the stories that mm-hmm. you happen upon, you know, like I was talking about that interesting coincidence that both of your middle names ended up being Patrick and you guys found out on air. That's mm-hmm. crazy. Well, these grandmothers, a paternal great, great, great grandmother and my great grand, my grandmother on my um, maternal side, they crossed paths in Petersburg, Virginia in, in 1940, unbeknownst to each other. Yeah. You know, our families didn't know each other. They, of course, did not know each other. But when I found out that happened, I thought, oh, my God, like what a strange, like, how is it? possible. One was interviewed for the WPA ex-slave narratives, um, and one was sent to the Mm -hmm. Central um, Lunatic Asylum for the Negro Insane in Petersburg in 1940. Mm -hmm. Now, if those women don't have stories that need to be told, I just don't know whose stories, you know, need to come into being, right? And so generally what drives me is like this, there is something about 
you know, trying to, the, the things that I'm trying to question and the things that I'm trying to parse through that forces me to the page. So it's generally not ego, but it is interest. Like I'm just fascinated. Um, and I tell people all the time and I'm nosy as heck. So nosiness will drive me as a writer, I think, more than 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 ego does. Um, those writers who are driven kind of more by like ego and confidence, you know, uh, ego, you know, that they can like push forward above everything else. Maybe those are the folks that, you know, end up being unkind. I don't know. But I will tell you, more writers are kind than unkind. Like th those yeah. to me are the anomalies. Like those are weird, just very mm. strange things that I hear. And I think like, what? How the heck does that happen? Yeah. Um, but yeah. more writers are, are, are kind than unkind. So that's a that's a good thing for us. Can you provide your synopsis or elevator pitch of what soul culture is about and let us know the inspiration behind it? Hmm, sure. Um, I can give you my elevator pitch. So soul culture um, is a, a tribute to Black poets who kind of raised me uh, in a metaphoric sense, right? Um, and so uh, there are interviews. I interviewed 10 Black poets um, during uh, the course of about a decade. Um, and while I was interviewing those folks whose work I really loved, I was also figuring out my own life and my own way into the writing life and realized during the course of those interviews in that time that much of this work was the work that had kind of grown me up in the industry. Um, and so soul culture is a culmination of those things, right? So that's the elevator pitch. Um, the inspiration behind the book, um, really and truly, I, I was in graduate school um, and E. Ethelbert Miller, who was one of the poets that I interviewed, he was uh, my teacher at Bennington College um, and he played me real hard. Uh, he said, you know, I kept coming up to him with all of these ideas about people. I, you know, I know I was just head over heels in love with Lucille Clifton and just losing my mind. Yusef Komenyaka was coming to speak at the school and he forced me to introduce him because I was like shaking in my boots. I was so scared. Like these black poets that I really revered. Um, and he said, you know, you've got to get over this awe syndrome you have about these writers. If you don't get over this awe syndrome, how are you going to be one? Hmm. And I sat with that question and he said, oh, it's not really a question for you. Here's what you're going to do. <laughs> you're going to interview these writers that you love. Uh, and then you're going to publish those interviews because it's twofold, right? You uh, get to ask them all the questions that you're thinking about. You get to sit with them as human beings. Um, and then you get to give them a little bit of shine because they deserve it, right? If they've changed your life, you know, if they've done all this for you, then they deserve And I thought, oh, my God, I cannot do that. And he, it, it, I don't know if you all know Ethelbert Miller, but he is a connector, right? Like, really and truly. He knows everyone who knows anyone um, particularly poets of color. Um, and so he put me in contact with so many of these poets. And I started, you know, I started with him. He was my guinea pig um, and, and published that interview. And so I was doing these really long, I mean, really in-depth craft interviews, like starting with, you know, um, do you remember your first encounter with poetry? Like, you know, what happened when you were a child that made you interested in language all the way up to, you know, their final book. So some of these people, these are Sonia Sanchez and Lucille Clifton. You know, we're talking 30, 40 year careers by the time I sat down with them. And I'm asking them these kind of like in-depth craft questions, like just things that I want to know. So these interviews turned out to be fantastic. Not, not for me, but because, you know, who gets to sit down? You know, that interview with Sonia Sanchez. It lasted for two or three days, like six or eight hours of tape by the time I was done. 
Sonia yeah. freaking Sanchez. Who gets yeah. to spend that much time with a legend, right? Um, and so and a candid legend at that, like you know, Sonia you know, Miss Sonia don't uh, play no games. Yeah. And so um, the interviews ended up being really wonderful, and so I published them in journals. And then eventually, I thought I have to compile these. Like people have to hear what these black poets uh, have to teach us about kind of making a life in this work. And that ended up being the inspiration, the impetus for soul culture, even though soul culture ended up being uh, quite a bit different from that. And when you were talking about him being a connector, the that that line, if you believe in someone's talent, uh, mm -hmm. you find the doors and push them through uh, until they reach that point of takeoff. That's what yeah. literary politics is all about. That's that good. is just that is just flames. You know, yeah. I got that's one of my yeah. one of my tabs. Yeah. Um, Come on. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he lives that, so that that's the real gift, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, I I'm gonna so as we get into the meat potato meat and potatoes now, um, I'm gonna ask you a question as a small attempt at flattery, oh. um, and that is because I know that you do this with your students at the I'm beginning, so glad this is here. right? Oh. So at the beginning of our session, we I have did. to ask, what is the story of <laughs> your name? <laughs> What yes. a great, you know, no one has flipped that on me yet. What Listen, a great question. Right? I have been oh. using that in my Insta story all day What's to have up? conversations. Yes. Stop. Yes. Isn't it a fantastic, seriously. Yeah. Tell me the that. story of your name. I can't it's, wait. I, I love that question. Spot. Isn't that a great question? Do <laughs> it. it I mean, do it in classes. Do it as an icebreaker. It, it, and it's insane. Like the stories of people's names. But what a great question. Look, this is why Reggie Bailey gets to be more poetic. Because of the RB. Because of the RB. So here's the story of my name. Because of the okay. RB. It's because of the initials. So my initials are RLB, right? And then I got married. Mm -hmm. So we'll tack on the end. Hey, baby. We'll tag on the end later. But, <laughs> you know, um, my father's name is Robert Lee Bingham. So my parents decided I'd have his initials. So Ramika Lashara Bingham, right? Eventually, that was the case. But that was just a fallback. They were like, whatever, we'll make some crap up and you'll have your daddy's initials. Because my real name was my cousin's name. I have a cousin named Lanika and I talk mm -hmm. about this in the book. In the book, yeah. Right? And I did not know this until, you know, I was a little bit older, but that was my name. My mother and her closest sister in age, her and my Aunt Eunice. Hey, Aunt Eunice. She watches all my stuff. I love you, Auntie. And so, um, you know... <laughs> Uh, uh, Eunice and my mother are only two years apart. So they would, you know, they were the closest and they would come up with names for their kids together and plan their weddings and all this stuff. And so my mom had this name, Lanika, that she really loved for her first child. And uh, Eunice had the baby first and stole her name. And so, <laughs> you know, I was really supposed to be Lanika. So I guess my mom was just like, ah, oh, make it rhyme, Ramika. We'll spell it wrong. Cause Lanika is spelled with a K, Ramika is with a C. So my mom still got that wrong. And mm -hmm. that's why everybody has trouble pronouncing it, but it's okay. Um, and so my name is like entirely made up. I tell people all the time, you know, when they mispronounce it, I'm like, it's okay. You know, they just faked it. There was no, <laughs> there's like nothing really there except <laughs> that they finally like fit in the initials. Like, oh, fine. We'll just do your daddy's initials. So, hey, mom and dad, love y'all. This book is an exercise in getting at roots and making it plain. And I don't mean that in the sense of simple, because even though accessible, the work of remembering that you're doing is as important as the historian mantle that you and Honoré kind of evade, um, all while doing the archivist work. 
Yeah. When I finished it, I thought about um, Honoré's work on Wheatley, mm-hmm. uh, on the way that she keeps Miss Lucille's name alive constantly while, mm-hmm. um, you know, now and while she was here. Yep. Um, and how Miller sends love from his strength of African-American culture mm-hmm. out into the world. I think about the ending of the book's insistence on community uh, being what keeps the work going. Yeah. Can you speak to how this work, um, how this works uh, in, in respect to that line um, yeah. and how, um, you know, this kind of how that work, how that line just works in general? That's, I mean, a fantastic question, of course. Um, thank you so much um, for that, like really like in-depth reading and like tracing that lineage, <laughs> like mm-hmm. lineage, of course, is like really important. I, you know, I see. Um, I mean, there really is no, it's interesting. You know, there are all these kind of movements that we talk about and I really do, you know, I, I feel like we're in the middle of a, of a, of a third, you know, black literary renaissance. I think Kaveh Kahneman has kind of ushered that in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's Harlem Renaissance as a black arts movement, but those movements, you know, over time are really very small. You know, even if you look at, you know, the way we camp the Harlem Renaissance, you know, we'll say 1920s into maybe 35. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the black arts movement, we'll say, eh, let's say 65 to 75 before being generous. Right. Um, you know, Kaveh Kahnem starts in 96, um, but it takes a, it takes a little while for that thing to blossom. So I kind of I kind of think about, you know, that happening with um, Natasha Trethewey winning the Pulitzer Prize in 06, 07. Right. Like so that's kind of the start of this big, you know, flourishing that's happening, you know, in the last 10 years or so now. But so what's happening uh, in all them years in between, (laughs) right? So we have these, you know, maybe two to three like named times, you know, there's the women's movement in between. There's all these things. But what, you know, what's happening in between? Are we saying that black folks aren't writing? Are we saying that nothing significant was written during those? That's ridiculous. We know that's, you know, completely untrue. But what's happening is, you know, Toni Morrison is becoming an editor at Random House and kind of like ushering people in the door one by one by one. In addition to having that little professional space, she's having salons at her house where she's bringing in, you know, the folks who two, three generations from now will be the huge writers that we know, you know, who are helping her type up the bluest eye and eating her pie and her carrot cake at her house, right? Like, so community in the way that black folks have always cobbled it together is like, look, we get two, three people together. I watch your kids. We uh, bake the macaroni and cheese over here. Then we come together. We look at these little poems. Then we go back. We do a rent party because, you know, he getting kicked out for his art. And so we got to figure mm-hmm. out how to do the. You know what I mean? So black folks have always cobbled together community. And those little pockets are what continue to keep us going well yeah. beyond these movements. Right, yeah. folks are, are often on the outside of, um, and so you know, and then there's all you know, you all probably know this more than I do, but you know, there are people who are wildly famous as writers, but usually it's like one black writer at a time, you know, maybe it was Ani last year, that's great, mm-hmm. you know, honorate, don't uh, you know, I call her Ani because we've known each other forever and I love her dearly, um, but you know. Maybe maybe it was Ani last year. Let's say the book of last year was Love Songs of W.E.B. Boys, and, and it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right? And rightfully so. Right? But that's one at a time. How many other brilliant books did we read? And did we, like, as a community, really celebrate at the same time? 
right? Mm -hmm. And that one brilliant book, you know, got fortunately got much of it to do. You know, it ends up being a Harper Collins book. It ends up winning awards. Thank God. But how many times are we looking back at books like, how does no one know? You know, I'm looking behind you, Akili, and I see Paul Mayers. I see Gail Jones on the back of your shelf. Like, how in the world does no one know these writers who have changed our lives, who the Black community have been, we've been, you know, just holding these people in our hands, shelling them. How many times have you pushed Ann Petrie into somebody's hands? Come on said, now. Oh, my God, you never read The Street. You got to read The Street. Yep. You know what yeah. I mean? How many times have you said, oh, my God, you know, you've never read Henry Dumont. You got to read Henry Dumont. So these are the folks that we carry. And that's why, you know, that last essay in the book come through. You know, first of all, that phrase just means so many things for us. Right. Like, you know, mm -hmm. come, through, come through to the cookout. We having a cookout. Come through. Right. Mm -hmm. or like, you know, <laughs> or whatever, whatever you coming through, I'm coming through. <laughs> come. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you understand? Yeah. So there's so many different ways that we think about that. But for me, it was really important by the end of the thing. Um, and that essay was not anywhere in the book. It was not planned. Uh, it was not in the proposal. That was nothing. It was after I finished compiling this new thing that Soul Culture became that I realized you can't end, you know, on the singular voice. You have to remind people that if you want to do this thing, you got to carry others with you. That's the only way it works. Love it, love yeah. it. Yeah, nah, and and yeah, I mean, there was there was so much there. Um, you know, and and what I think of, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this a little bit, and forgive me. Um, but I thought of the part where you're like, I believe it was Ethelbert Miller, E. Ethelbert Miller, who was saying like, uh, what? There, I'm supposed to believe there were only like what three or four writers during mm -hmm. the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah. Like, I thought yeah, about yeah. all that when you said it. Um, mm -hmm. because like even in the in the early aughts, like not even what a few years ago, they're finding unpublished Claude McKay novels, yes, right? So on. even the writers we know have work that we're still Zora Neil Hurston, we're still getting they're new cool. books. We're still getting from new her. work. Yeah. And mm -hmm. even after the Renaissance, right? We just got a new novel from Richard Wright. Yes, yeah. right. Yeah. So it's just or an extended, yeah, it was a novel, but they had only previously published it as a short story. But yeah. either way, right there's there's we've always been writing we've always been at least attempting to be published but the yeah. industry hasn't always made space for us to publish right and you know you talk about tony morrison be an editor you talk about how when you earlier how when you narrowed down your search to agents of color it turned into it went from thousands to about a hundred so yeah i mean it's just everything is connected with what we've been saying so far i wanted to make sure to pull the book out for this because i i think Honoré Jeffers may be listening in or watching. And when I quote Honoré, I'm going to get her right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so in an essay Jeffers published in the Virginia Coyley Review called The Subjective Briar Patch, Contemporary American Poetry, she said much of what I was feeling in that lecture hall. What does it matter if the faces of contemporary American poets are different colors if ultimately the writers of the quote best uh, end quote poetry in American literature, the modernist are all white and overwhelmingly male. If a poet cannot make her literary god in a subjective image, how can someone who isn't white or male pray at a poetry altar of her own making? The answer is she can't. So I read that, and then I also connect that with a quote later on, and, and I'm not I'm not quoting this directly, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but from A. Van Jordan, where he talks about how no other culture is basically so like reading someone else 
and then going back to their roots, right? right. And, and and selfishly, you know, I, I love reading that because one thing I ended up doing was basically like going on like a, a basically like a four, like a three to four year run where I only read black authors, and that became like my literary foundation, mm-hmm. right? So now my touch points are Morrison, Wright, Ellison, Petrie, yeah. Jones, you, you know, you name yeah. it, right? And I wanted you to talk to us about just the the importance of building that black literary foundation and how your black literary foundation i guess talk about some of the ways that your black literary foundation just fed soul culture oh that i mean it's such a good question you all are such close readers that oh thank you um thank you yeah i ended up having to do something really similar (laughs) to you you know what i mean so i i grew up in phoenix so, um, you know, shout out Arizona. Even, you know. I, 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 I didn't mm-hmm. even know, don't even try it. I ain't <laughs> know black people like existed beyond. I mean, you know, really and truly, like I, I, I understood that there were some black folks writing books for children. Thank goodness, because I had wonderful aunts that would send me like boxes of books. And so Mildred D. Taylor and Walter Dean Myers and all of these people would like arrive to me. And then I started, you know, librarians are the saving grace of all things. I started going to the library. We was, you know, real poor. So I definitely wasn't buying a whole lot of books, but I was reading a whole lot of books and I would ask for certain things at the library and they would find me wonderful things. Um, So I, you know, found Honey, I Love, Eloise Greenfield. So I found Black poets early on, but thinking about like children's books, I was really and truly under the impression, you know, in fifth grade, my my teacher read us a Langston Hughes poem. It kind of rocked my world. And so I read Langston Hughes, but I was kind of under the impression at that point, up until college, up until I was 18 and moved back to the East Coast and and like came (laughs) to where there was some Black folks, that, you know, it was just kind of like, you know, just like the sonnet died with Shakespeare. It was like, oh, well, Black poetry ended with Langston Hughes. That's it. Mm. You know, that's all. That's the only Black poet you hear about. So that he must have been it, right? And I came um, to college uh, at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, um, but I found a book by Tim Siebels, a black poet on a thrift store shelf before I started college. And I thought, oh my God, like the gods have have called me to it. Now I didn't know the brother was living here and went and put his books on on shelves at thrift stores because that's just the kind of guy he is. Mm-hmm. So all of that came later. But when I when I found Tim Siebel's and started reading poets, Nikki Giovanni came and was our, our guest speaker um, just by happenstance for uh, MLK Day that year, my freshman or, or sophomore year. And I had started, you know, you know, I'd always been writing. I had writing these little poems and they would, I mean, when I seriously, like, again, we talking about ego, but this is not ego. They were terrible. I mean, they were bad poems that I was writing, right? Like really bad. And I slipped them to her as she was signing my book. And, you know, she wrote me a handwritten letter from the hotel up the street that I still keep framed in my house that basically said, you know, young sister, keep going. You know, I, I love what you're doing. She was lying. Them poems were bad. Right? <laughs> yeah. were bad. She was lying. But it was about community, right? Like she saw this young black girl. She saw that I was desperate. Like I was so hungry for like a black living poet and then you know 15 years later she put my work in in her anthology 100 best african-american poems right like so you know it comes full circle right much better poems not the ones i slipped her and so um and so then for all during undergrad then like you know when i wasn't reading books for school i was only reading black folks 
You know, I didn't come to Toni Morrison until I was in college. I did not get Morrison until I was in college. That's why I was so excited when, you know, they gave Morrison uh, to my daughter, you know, when she was in high school, as a sophomore in high school. I was like, oh, thank God. You know, we're somewhere where it's changing. Something is happening. But for, you know, those four years, I I was reading, uh, you know, poets of color almost exclusively, not just poets too. You know, I was reading, I was reading fiction, you know, I bring up Morrison, but I wasn't reading poetry very much before undergrad either, contemporary poetry. So I had to, you know, I had to educate myself double time, right? Because I just didn't know there were contemporary poets, people who were making a life at this thing. And then that there were all these black folks who were, you know, writing things that actually spoke to my existence. Like they were talking to me. You know, the first time I came to Tony K. Bombard's Gorilla My Love, I was like, yo, like, this is how I talk with my girls. Like, this is us on the playground. This is us. Like, who's writing this? You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So that three, four years, I had to spend re-educating myself as well. It's the same thing. Yeah. yeah. You know? No, it, and it's it was just uh, just when I saw those two things in particular, you know, and, and just how they connected and how. Just so many of like the authors you interviewed, like had, you know, that that theme where, you know, you just have to go to the work to not only like be, you know, critical and analyze and, and you know, become better storyteller, but you also go to see yourself. Um, I, I'll say even like mythologize, like just yeah. how everyone else is, you know, Absolutely. Um, and I, I just like how that theme ran through the work. Hmm. Word, Thank, word. You. Thank you. Recently, we talked on our Patreon a, a tiny bit about the idea of the best black man. Uh, uh, what is it? What is the new? What is the best man? Uh, Mary? What is it? Best man? Yeah, best man. T- final. Best chapters. man. Oh, final. Chapters. I haven't watched some no spoilers. I, I, I got you. I, I got you. I, I just want to talk about how Neil Neil Long said because okay. she would like it to be considered, uh, you know, a great movie instead of a great black movie. Um, we also spent some time talking a bit about identity in reference to the trauma plot and black arts, uh, possible inability to escape it juxtaposed with some other essays that got into the topic. When I read Sonia Sanchez's, uh, Sonia Sanchez talk about our, uh, people's reluctancy to be called black as Negro was the preferred term of the day at the time. I hear the same thing I hear when I hear folks grapple with being black, anything. Hmm. Um, that even came up briefly uh, in the makeup of the show. Now, now, obviously, I don't care one bit about blackness being associated with my work. I mean, I'm literally named a black man reading on Instagram, uh, and I'm a self-professed reformed hotel. Um, okay. And and I love, yeah, yeah, I'm reformed. Yes, yes, okay. it was a, it was a process. Um, and I loved, loved, love reading Van Jordan's excerpt from the interview uh, because that's me, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, your book also talks partially in contrast, not one of your own design, but one used by others uh, who would rather not lead with or draw attention to Blackness. When you wrote that, you learned the best way to defend Blackness is to let it be just as it is yeah. or was or could be. Yeah. If race is a code word for Black, and black art in its totality can't ever be separated from the historical movements that surround it. Mm-hmm. How would you suggest a reader navigate art creatively, spiritually, and critically? I mean, first of all, these the are the question longest God. questions ever. Right. I mean, what in the world? Clearly. These are the longest <laughs> questions ever. 
<laughs> because you pack so much into that. Mm-hmm. So much that's like really brilliant. I mean, here's my honest, like, here's my honest to goodness answer. I don't want to separate nothing. Listen, I tell, I tell folks all the time, uh, you know, people are like, well, they put you in a box. Well, I want all the boxes though. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I really do. I want all the boxes. Like, screw that. Um, I deserve all of them janks. And here's why. Uh, because, you know, if blackness is one thing and, uh, you know, women's writing is one thing. And then they, you know, what they do to poets is they like to say, you know, like spoken word is one thing and like, yeah. you know, um, literary is one thing and da 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 is one thing, which, you know, all of those things can be true. But guess what? Uh, we contain multitudes. I want all of that mess. Right. Um, I also, as a black writer, <laughs> I'm on the huge side of things. I don't want to separate anything. Like I, I, you know, when I'm, when I'm teaching, you know, I teach a, a, a class uh, called, now it's called Women Writing Black Lives Matter, um, you know, cause it's a better catch all, um, but it was really called the Black Interior, right? Mm-hmm. Um, after Elizabeth Alexander. Um, and ain't nothing better than her. Um, and so okay. what, I, what I think about, you know, in that course that I'm teaching all the time is there is no way to separate the black struggle from black art, right? But that's what makes it good. Like, <laughs> that's the <laughs> thing that makes it multifaceted. You know, there's a line where I get, you know, I feel like, you know, I get uh, my, one of my one of my dearest friends, Dante Michaud, was reading mm-hmm. the book well before it came out. Brilliant poet, brilliant, you know, thinker. Um, and and <laughs> he, he read, you know, the line in the book where I was like, you know, I'm always looking for this multi-layered kind of triple consciousness in everything that I read. And then when I don't find it in the work of folks that aren't folks of color, I'm like, well, that's boring as heck. Like you just had to make it through life with just your own self and your own inside thoughts. Like nobody was coming at you just because of who you were. <laughs> that made life so much harder for me. Right. And so, you know, he was laughing like, oh, you're really giving it to him. And I was like, kind of. But the, the complexity of the thing is what makes the work compelling. Right. Yeah. You know, we were just like joking about R&B, but like the soul singer's voice is the voice of pain crafted over, <laughs> you know, ingenuity. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. all of those things are what make it interesting. So really, Akili, I'm not avoiding your question. No, no, you no. Know, how do we, you know, then how, if, if, if race isn't the framework, right? Like then how, how do we kind of construct art? I mean, then I, I think we start with complexity. Mm-hmm. You know, if we don't start with race, then at least start with complexity. Let's look at all of the different layers that brought us to the revelation that is in front of us. Mm-hmm. Right. Because then it just won't be such a narrow scope every time. You know, I I, I will say, you know, um, being from the land of both and like Mr. Lucille said and me wanting all the boxes. I want this book uh, in, the, in the black author section and I want it in the memoir section. I also mm-hmm. want it in the literary theory section because it should be there, too. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, w- I want the book all over the place. But I will say sometimes I am a little bit upset when I go to the black authors section of a bookstore. I was just in a bookstore the other day, a bookstore that I love. Yeah. But they had Toni Morrison. And I'm not this is not a slight at anybody, but Toni Morrison, Donald Goins, mm-hmm. Jericho Brown and somebody else like really near each other. And I was like. You're just throwing all of them people to get like you have That's not true. thought about the complexity of their work at all. 
Yeah. And, like, and, yeah. just because they have decided this is my race marker, you have thrown all of that work together. And none of that work fits beside each other. It, and, and that's why I rock with, that's why I rock with what Nia Long said, though, hmm. because oftentimes, right, like we're sadly, we're not the ones in the stores like hmm. putting the books in the categories right That's, so yeah. i'm not i'm not looking at your book and thinking hey this is a black woman's book yeah i'm looking at it and thinking okay this is a good book first off yeah. and second it is memoirs it's interviews it's poetry yeah. it's literary theory like you were saying it's yeah. essays whatever you want to call it right so if i put out a good literary novel right why y'all just gonna throw me in the black section next to every genre right. that's right. what i'm saying yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, I what, mean, really, I, go ahead, Akili. Well, I was gonna say what I think about when you said that, Reggie, right? Um, is similar to what we were saying about the award thing, and earlier too, I thought you was gonna bring it up, but one of the books that we have uh, been talking about, and Reggie even more so, is Sadiq Fafana's book. Um, and uh, but I was thinking about, I mean, that just them being lazy, and so I don't think we we have to do the work of like they should be able because I've seen them do this with white books. Right, have them in various different places, and I know they have multiple ones because I go in there and I have right. to ask for the book, and they have to tell me how many they have, and it's yeah. more than the two that they have in the African American section. Right? right, so you could easily do that. It's them being lazy, right? So I don't know if I don't know I don't know if I like the idea of us. It's not even really shrinking, but you know how we make space for white people sometimes. Yeah, right. Make space for what whiteness does. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I feel like that's what we're doing when we say that, you know, hmm. like like the best memory. It's a black, it's a black movie. Yeah, right. But I, but I do, I do understand, particularly, really, particularly with film. Like, you know, it makes me so angry that you know, Beyond the Lights is a film that I just love, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and it makes me so angry that it's not, you know, Netflix. When you bring it up, you see, I ain't watching nothing but Hallmark movies and love stories. So bring that movie <laughs> up. Bring it like, up. Why, yeah, why yeah. doesn't it come up until I go to like, you know, mm -hmm. you gotta go to like, <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> you know what I'm saying. I mean? So like... that, so Reggie, I, I feel you. I do think, you know, obviously this conversation always, often goes back to like bookstores and like categories, and I do understand. I've worked in a bookstore. I do understand that we have to be able to categorize things, right? Mm -hmm. Like that we have to figure out a way to, but often this is about marketing. This is about money, <laughs> right? When we go back to like dollars <laughs> um, and not just bookstore dollars, because that's kind of the last end of the, of the marketing. I'm talking yeah. about the way we categorize, you know, with my agent, is this women's fiction or is it YA? Is it, did it you know, like we have to start figuring out the box because of the way it's going to be marketed. Um, mm -hmm. But I do think we should think about being expansively marketed, right? Like people should think about ways to do that for our work, especially when, you know, so many of us and, and for real, kudos to lots of brilliant folks that I'm reading right now and folks that I'm trying to follow. You know, soul culture is really a hybrid text in so many ways, right? Like mm -hmm. there are images, there are you know, a little snap snippets, Q and A's from the interviews. There is kind of this weird hybrid, you know, movement happening with these braided lyrical essays. Um, so, so just for that, because of the hybridity of the thing, it should be in a number of places, but it isn't. They still so have to figure out like which place is it most likely to be, you know, are people who are most likely, you know, to read it. And I think we should maybe be thinking about ways 
to, to think about, you know, um, marketing things more broadly, just across the board um, yeah. and getting, getting the folks into other people's hands. You know, yeah. I'm not saying I don't, I don't want a black section. I want that as well. In a yeah. different and, and shout out to the school of Miss Lucille Clifton, the both and school, right? Cause mm -hmm, I know that mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I can't say I'm from her school, but right. I can say I am from the school the or school. a school of That's both. Right. And, and I like that, you know, you're speaking like truth to that now. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's just the, the thing about it again, and, I, and I'll get off this after this. I don't think when they're putting us in the black section, they're, they're doing it as a compliment. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. They're doing it as yeah. like we we see it as a compliment because we know right. there ain't nothing wrong with it, right? Yeah. But they're not doing that as a compliment. They're doing that to say, yo, somebody who's skin darker than you wrote this book. You know, if you yeah. want to read it, go ahead, right? And I'll even say this too, right? Some depending on what you black and what you're writing about, you ain't gonna end up in that black section because there's this black author named Dexter Palmer who writes like sci-fi novels, and I don't hmm. think his characters are necessarily black. I bet oh, you don't find Desta Palmer's books in the black. You know section. what's now, crazy? That's interesting. Go ahead. Yeah, they be. Oh, I was gonna say they be in the. They be in the sci-fi section. The sci they because they are not in the black section. Genre. Sometimes there are certain genres that will mm -hmm. trump race, mm -hmm. right? Because Octavia is <laughs> so over that, there. I'm on. Yeah. I was about mm -hmm. to say. So that's really interesting. There are that certain genres that will trump race, right? And so mm -hmm. they're like, but maybe this is. And I will say this, you know. I'm glad bookstores exist. I'm glad libraries exist. I'm glad we have places to find books. And I don't necessarily think that, you know, it's just laziness that is camping our books there. I mean, I identify my, you know, I was very clear, you know, that title is my title, Black Poets, Books and Quest. You know, I wanted that signified it. Also, that grew me up. It was clear that mm -hmm. it was Black and Southern and I wanted it there in that way, right? Like yeah. I wanted people to see it, not to mention the fro on the cover. Come on, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, so yeah. I, I was, you know, I was signifying in many ways. Um, and so for me, if you see this book and you don't put it in a black section, then you're lazy. I understand part of that. <laughs> but also reading the book would maybe say, oh, you know, this is interesting. This might also fall under, right? Like, so, but just looking at the cover. But I, I will say that I think, you know, it's not only that people are just, oh, black writer, lazy, put them over there in African American. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes when black folks enter a bookstore, we're so used to not seeing ourselves anywhere else London. that we make a beeline, of course. Like, where's the African-American yeah. section? Because if I'm going to find me anywhere, it's probably going to be there. Like, y'all don't see me nowhere else in this big old store. Yeah. So whether yeah. it's poems or whether it's fiction, if I'm going to see me, my best chances are to go over here to the, you know, these five shelves that they have. And the same thing with sci-fi. Like, you know, it's a much larger section. Let's be clear. Right? It's a yeah. much bigger market. But folks that are coming in who are hardcore sci-fi readers, you know, they're going to find sci-fi and fantasy kind of together, camp together away from uh, what is sometimes deemed literary fiction or just fiction. Right? Yeah. So like fiction, yeah. then sci-fi, then black. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? it's interesting. That, and that's, yeah. Yeah, there's romance, and that'll be mm -hmm. over here. Romance writers also, let's be clear, I've been reading a whole bunch of like brilliant Black women romance writers. You know, Jasmine Guillory and really loved Ebony Liddell's uh, Love Radio that came out last year. Mm -hmm. Tia Williams, she talks about this all the time. They're going to be in romance. They're not going to be in Black books. They, yeah. they, it seems like there's been a little bit of a migration. You can kind of find them in both right now. That's just started happening. And probably because yeah. those books are making money. Yeah.
So it's back to the marketability. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. back to the marketability. You yeah. can move more copies of that book. There's definitely going to be more copies of that book in there than there is a soul culture. And I just understand that that, you know, uh, is, is goes back to like, you know, buying habits of folks. But if we put it in other places where other folks might be able to encounter it, there might be a chance for it to be more marketable widely, right? So those are the things that I just wish some people would think about. Yeah, I, I posed that because I knew it was going to be a good discussion. I, I yeah. love things. You just that, wanted that... to fight, Achilles. No, I think those are the best discussions. I think when there are like like a bunch of thoughts on it, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it speaks to the other the last the last part of your book that I put in there. Mm. The the part like all of that blackness exists. Black folks that want to say, um, you know that you know that's not what I necessarily lead. But that exists. I don't think yeah. that's wrong. Yeah. Um, and and I think we have to have these conversations too. Absolutely. see that migration happen in those books yeah and, and this conversation is a part of soul culture it is yes. you know what i'm saying so soul culture so culture mm-hmm. ain't ain't so culture ain't just one thing that's right so yeah so that that's that was a Good question. And Achilles knew that would get me. Uh, I like to uh, throw alley oops. I'm a, I'm short. I gotta get the assist off. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> but I'll I'll ask you this, right? And I'm a I'm a I'm a shout out uh honoree again in this question, right? That that is inspired by your book, of course, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. um, and this is a quote from A. Van Jordan again. Mm-hmm. Before being exposed to the work, at best, their understanding is usually a rapper or somebody on Deaf Poetry Jam, which is fine, but it isn't the full spectrum. And as I read this quote from A. Van Jordan, I thought of Honoré Jeffers, who um, was also, of course, interviewed in your book. But I also thought of a quote she said on a, East, on a recent Instagram live that I saw her on, shout out to Crystal Melanated Reader, um, where she simply said, nobody reads poetry, Right. And this also made me think of the contradictory nature of many of us, because a lot of us don't read poetry, but we all engage with it because we all listen to music, you know, among other forms of poetry that we all engage with. Right. Can can you speak to this strange place that a lot of us exist in where we are engaging with poetry, but we are so reluctant to read it? It's it's not that strange uh, because the way they set, you know, they set poets up. First of all, you know, if you are given any poetry, anything to read, even in school, even as a really young person, um, it is poetry that is written by someone who is at least a hundred years older than you, who has absolutely, there's no point of reference at all in your life for what they, and I'm not just talking about black folks, I'm talking about white folks too. You know, the Mm -hmm. only poetry we are given um, is, you know, Whitman's old captain, my captain, um, when they could at least do, you know, leaves of grass, they could at least do. I sing the body electric something, mm-hmm. right? Man, you know, leaves. Better than that, um, <laughs> you know, like they could they could start somewhere else, um, or you know, even Frost, who you know, I think Frost is, is a like beautiful writer. You know, I love syllabics as much as the next person, um, but <laughs> I, you know, I just ain't been on too many roads less traveled. I live in mm-hmm. the hood, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> Um, you know, like, so those things do not, it, the, the problem is the way we're teaching poems. First of all, we're teaching them as inaccessible as one right answer, you know, check a box. Like it was, it was really interesting, you know, a few years ago, um, a state, uh, paid me a, a, a lot of money, the most money I was ever paid for one poem. And they wanted the poem 
um, that is a poem about the March on Washington. Um, and it's about all this food my grandmother made because my grandmother, my father's mother, uh, Shirley Bingham, hey, Nana, my father's mother, she couldn't go to the March on Washington, but she lived in Baltimore. And all that week, people were walking past her house, walking from Baltimore down to DC, you know, another 40, 50 miles down to DC. So she would make, she made plates all that week and just passed out plates. She had her children passing out plates to everybody that she saw walking to the March on Washington, like as her effort to like support the folks. And I thought, oh my, like she told me that story in passing one time. And I thought, oh my God, like think about how many people did that. We got to write this down. That's amazing, right? So they wanted to use that poem um, as part of a, a, a testing packet for students, like in, in a high school test. And I, I sold them the poem because like I said, I was a poet, I was broke, it was great. You know, um, and it was the most I'd ever been paid for a poem. And then I thought about it later, like, what kind of multiple choice questions could they come up with for that poem, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what kind of things are they going to say? And like, are they going to say, is the poem about A, someone's grandmother, B, the March on Washington, C, what Black folks can do in community, D, all of the above? I don't know. I hope it's D, all of the above. That they give them <laughs> Right. But interestingly enough, we teach people that poetry, you know, even poetry like that. I'm glad they were reaching out to contemporary like living poets who are writing stuff, you know, that might have had some resonance for somebody now. Uh, but they're teaching people that poetry is not, you know, about interpretation. And it's like this is this one meaning and this is what we have to do. Well, that's not why we love hip hop. <laughs> you know, we love hip hop because it's a form that is endlessly inventive. Right. It's a form that like we get like I get as much out of style and tone. This is what I, I think people, you know, should always correlate to poetry. You know, when I teach a, a craft of poetry class, you know, I'm taking Jay-Z's song cry in there for tone. I'm not even talking about the narrative, which is like bananas. <laughs> right. But like, you know, the tone of that versus Busta, I got you all in check is like, what is happening? Like, talk about the, the, the myriads of things that are happening in the work. Um, and I think if we talked about how much that happens in poetry, like the, the, the different tones that people are coming with, the different ways that people are addressing um, the interior narrative, uh, talk about creativity. Like, you know, I, I was, <laughs> listen, I was reading, I don't know if you, you brothers have seen this book yet, but I was reading this book, Concentrate by Courtney Faye Taylor. It just came out. Like, I, you know, it's a Cave Conum prize winning book. And I don't know Courtney at all. It's not an endorsement. Hey girl, you know, I, I hope to meet you someday. But freaking, hey, like, look at this, look at this book. Like you can see what this poet is doing and look at this freaking thing. You can see what this poet is doing in this book. Now, if we yes. said to people, you want somebody who's, whose flow is gonna change every other page, you know, you want somebody whose flow is comparable to an Eminem, like rapid fire, like metaphors. Well, read this, right? Yeah. Like if we made those comparisons for them and, it, and 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 showed them the different ways that contemporary poets are going at things, people would be so much more like, I think, invested in just seeking poems out. Right. But it's also mm -hmm. an oral art. So the more, you know, people hear poems like, you know, you hear a poet and you'd be like, oh, snap. Yeah, you know, that, you know that that was deep, and then you try to figure out why it was deep, right? But yeah. like, so that that helps too. So that's why you know Van Jordan in particular was talking about, you know, it's an old interview too, but he was talking about the Deaf Poetry Jam era, right? Like he was talking about, oh, this 
this is their reference point now, which wasn't a terrible reference point, but he was saying, that's all they got. Like, these are their two places, right? And I think we just need to be clearer with folks. Like, if we get work in front of folks, people would just see, oh, this is a lot better than, oh, captain, my captain. Like, what folks are doing now is a lot more complex and a lot more interesting. And, like, they're they're wrestling with the things that I'm wrestling with, like, in life. You know, yeah. so I, I just, you know, I just think if we could put Reginald Dwayne Betts, if we could put, you know, felon in people's hands, I mean, it would just change so much about like what people imagine poets to be and imagine, yeah. you know, what they can do. So, yeah. You know. yeah. Yeah. No. And, um, I, you know, I was thinking about just like the the potential for growth in the genre, like if. I don't know, these audiobook companies really tried to like do some real promotion behind it based off what you were saying. Yeah. Um, because like like uh one of our one of our friends, shout out Philip B. Williams, right? Hey. He has this uh one of my this... dearest, I call him hot stepper. He used to be a dancer. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, big shouts to him. And he has like this um, poem where he says ditto. Oh, like, ditto, yeah. Like yeah, and it, it yeah. is like one of the most mm. impressive feats. I've, I've seen right yeah. and it's Come just on. like can you and i just wonder can you read it the way he's saying it you know what i mean and right. and and it's almost like you know we gotta like 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 for people who really care about just books right and yeah. just books being in more people's hands and showing people like the best of books mm -hmm. i feel like that is a real potential opportunity for growth to really say yeah. yo get the audio book of this yeah. and like really yeah. stress it. Yeah, I think yeah. so too. I think, you know, I've been playing people poems more recently, like in my classes, as much as I can, I let them hear the poet, like vocalize mm -hmm. the poem. But even my husband, I was playing him part of Willie Perdomo's last book. Willie Perdomo is a beast. And if, yeah. you, if yeah. you hear Willie read it in his voice, you're like, oh, Willie from around the way, like Willie from the hood, I, I hear it. And when you hear that, you immediately think, oh, this person could understand something about me, mm -hmm. you know, because yeah. they're from where I'm from. So it's very different. So I yeah. I, I, absolutely think, again, back to marketability, there are other ways yeah. that we could be sharing this work that might, you know, get it into the hands of folks and really, you know, have folks, you know, be drawn to it in the way that we're drawn to hip hop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one, one piece that I keep asking Reggie uh, about is the one where it talks about um you know how rappers that we have today may have been poets uh given another you know given you know a different change of things right? right it's been a little while since i read it but i still think that piece is timeless and worth bringing up but um um i want to talk well one thing i was thinking about while you were showing concentrate was i have a student who uh is probably going to be doing a fair amount of time um uh for a shooting or a murder, uh, but before he became a man who, you know, did that, he was a boy who brought me a notebook that looked structurally like that, like, mm. like what I saw in concentrate. Mm. Um, and uh, I just, I was just thinking about that, um, you know, mm. you know, love to you leak if you ever get a chance to see this, but um, I was just thinking about how much he wanted that to get like out into the student to the other student's hands because yeah. he brought it to me one day um and and like you said if he if he had known that that's what's happening right now in contemporary mm. poetry 
you know, then you might, you know, and it's hard yeah. to say that because being a teacher now and seeing them become men and women, um, it, it's hard to say where you could have reached in, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, so I don't like to say that much, but I just, I know it was, but it makes you wonder. Well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, if you would have known this could be a possibility mm -hmm. you know, in a few years time, would it have given you a different path, just a different yeah, way yeah. to think yeah. about progressing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, yeah, you could have went to school for English, et cetera, yeah, et cetera, yeah. right? Um, but I, I bring that up, you know, about music because you recognize in Langston Hughes' poem "Mother to Son" uh, as the first time that you had seen poetry outside of song. Yeah. Uh, when I read Erica Hunt's portion, I spent considerable time thinking about it centering on improvisation, uh, improvisation's place in her work, and yeah. you echoing that sentiment. Uh, when I quit rapping, which I've never divorced poetry from it in my mind uh, since the first day I saw it, I made like what would be the obvious pivot into attempting to be a poet. Yeah. Um, and I say that to say, or rather to ask, what does it mean to see poetry outside of a song to you? And how did Erica mm. Hunt's work help you put song back into poetry? Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Oh. Erica would be, I think she would be really happy with that question um, because people don't think of her work as musical and she does, right? Mm -hmm. She she even talks about the fact that, you know, like jazz improvisation is more influential to her than say, you know, language poets, right? Like, so what's happening, you know, with rhythm is absolutely her impulse. Um, but, you know, poetry outside of song, this is an interesting and hard question for me because uh, I was never an MC because I was just never good at being an MC. But I'm, a, but I'm a You're singer. Sure? So music, I'm sure. I mean, when you say things like music can't save you, but it I marks mean, a place, and the knife can be a fierce negotiator. I mean, I mean those I are bars. Be able to spit a hot <laughs> bar, but I ain't got a bad sixteen count up in. You know what I mean? Like I, I can't. You got the voice too for it. Mm -hmm. I, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna just throw that out there. You definitely got the voice Let's, to be an MC. That's real. I, I love that so much. Wait until I tell my husband who's... Yes. You know, he insists his name is Spit Ready. So wait until I tell my yes. husband that I came back at MC after this joint. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but I... But music, as you can tell from the book and as you can tell from my other work, you know, I'm a, I'm a singer. I thought for sure I would mm -hmm. be a singer well, well before, you know, poetry ever, you know, came in and kind of like really took over my life in the best way. Um... So rhythm and sound have always been imperative to me. And they're showing up more and more and more in my work um, lately as well. Like, you know, there's even what I consider like song lyrics in the book that that is, you know, forthcoming, um, which I never thought would happen. Um, and so my answer to your first question is, I don't know if I see poem divorce from song as much as I used to imagine. I used yeah. to imagine. But again, I want all the boxes because I really feel like a gifted MC um, <laughs> the way ingenuity can't be divorced from the way a, a fierce MC rides the beat like it's both <laughs> it's mm -hmm. got to be you know the reason I fell in love with most death is because of the way that he could do both on top of each other really well and that's yeah. not something I had to worry about as a poet I just had to worry about the ingenuity in the narrative right I had mm -hmm. to ride the beat necessarily I had to create rhythm in the narrative to yeah. make it interesting to the ear uh, and to my ear first, right? And then, you know, hopefully to others as well. 
Um, but you know, if you can do both of those on top of each other, then you're you're on a different plane. And that's why, you know, to me, um, I don't know if poetry can necessarily be divorced from song, but um, that's the one thing that I think, you know, makes MCs and poets a little bit different. Um, you know, some two skill sets on top of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so thinking about Erica Hunt, you know, and improvisation, I think, you know, as I continue to go back to her work, in the essay, we talk about this kind of little red thread mm-hmm. that just kind of like moves throughout and you kind of see it and you can pick it out in different places as if it's in a piece of art. And I think that's what sound is like in her in her poems as well. Right. Um, I'm not listening for a song, but I am listening for what makes my hair stand on in in the same way that the crescendo in a really good song does. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. That's what's happening in in so many of Erica Hunt's poems. And in that in that essay we talk a lot about Jay Wright too. So Jay Wright is coming back to me as kind of one of those poets who you know is is all over the place. You know, uh, if I had to compare him to a fiction writer, you know, Jay Wright and maybe Gabriel Garcia Marquez are mm. kind of like on the same spectrum, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. whoa, like super deep, like crazy, like narratives that are so expansive that you, you, you know, you're in another world, really, like world building. Um, yeah. That's what they're doing. And I think Erica Hunt, she's well on her way if she's not right behind Jay Wright, like moving in that, you know, she is really on another planet sometimes. And it's like when you listen to Sun Ra or when you listen to Coltrane at the right time. Like, I'm really, like, you have taken something that shouldn't be this expensive. I was listening to human nature as I was giving my grandson a bath this morning. He's in his Michael Jackson phase, as every child in my house goes through. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I was listening to that song and I was like, how did he come up with this at that time, in that space and that time? Like, if you go back and listen to human nature and the way that's, is put together you're like it's like nothing it's like nothing mm-hmm. you've ever heard you're yeah. on another planet right now mm-hmm. and the best poets the poets that arrest me so deeply like with you know uh, you know their phrasing uh with the way that they you know I- i'm i'm really big on assonance so like vowel sounds and the way that they move that's why killing and jury would win in a, in a fight mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. you know th- those are the kind of things i'm like how did you where did you come from how are you on another planet with the way you present this sonically yes yes yeah. and i just i like that so much because as i was reading your book and, and especially the erica hunt chapter I thought of some of the other like guests we've had on here. Uh, shout out Shanita Hubbard. That's mm-hmm. the episode that's going to come out maybe two episodes, two Thursday episodes before this one, right? Okay. And, um, you know, her 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 book is also memoir and yeah. like cultural criticism and yeah. essay and all that, right? It's, it's hybrid, just like yours. Yeah. Um, and I, I think of also like South to America and just Imani Perry and how she... One thing she said when we had her up here was, you know, writers are always chasing musicians. Yes. And as I as I read your work, I thought about that and I started to make a connection in particular about how nonfiction, not to say fiction doesn't do it, yeah. but I've noticed it seems like a lot more of the contemporary nonfiction that we read. And you can see how you all are chasing musicians, especially with how like like because because your soul culture does read like an album. You know, mm. it does read like a 10 song album. Despite you get it right. everything, right? 
Um, so that's that's why I just thought that chapter in particular spoke a lot to you know just what was going on um, in the entirety of the work. Yeah, um, you get an A. You can write my next blurb for saying so mm-hmm. like an album. So mm-hmm. uh, I just want you to know that no, we'll be no, calling mm-hmm. Um, that was maybe the flyest compliment I've had about the book uh, the whole time <laughs> I've been listening to folks talk about it. But that is really interesting that you pick up on the fact that folks that are writing nonfiction um, are really the one. One, shout out to Imani Perry, because Breathe, her book Breathe really yes. was, was one of the books that I sat with, particularly as we're talking about this Erica Hunt chapter on mothering. Um, you know, it's on mothering and improvisation. And that book, Breathe, set with me more deeply than even South to America, than even looking for the rain. You know, I was I was kind of sitting with that like page by page as I was trying to come up with some way to say mothering is is more difficult than anything and um and probably takes over, you know, the front end of your brain, you know, the frontal mm-hmm. lobe. More than any other thing, because I was being asked, like, what influences your work more? You know, your life as a woman, your life as a mother, your life as a poet. And I thought, that's crazy. Like, they all take over, right? And they all become intertwined. But it's interesting that you say nonfiction folks, especially right now, are folks that you see kind of chasing the musicians. A lot of these folks are coming out of poems, right? Like, even Ta-Nehisi Coates, like, Coates was a poet. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the word on the street is, and I don't know Ta-Nehisi, so, you know, please forgive mm-hmm. me if I'm mm-hmm. getting the, the story wrong. But word on the street is, you know, he applied to Cave Conum. There are tapes of him at Furious Flower, like, you know, spitting. Like, yeah, you, yeah, know, yeah. you can find, you know, him doing his work out. So, you know, he comes from a poetic impulse, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, that's why Between the World and Me is so beautiful. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not only, you know, not, not only the fact that he's, you know, kind of like had time to craft things, but that, like, that's why it's it's so gorgeous. Right. So um, and in many ways, I I feel the same way about, you know, um, about the the work of other, you know, Clint Smith. Like, look at some of these folks that are writing nonfiction right now. Like these. This is the poetic impulse that they're writing Mm -hmm. out. It's the rhythmic impulse. So, of course, we're chasing musicians. We're chasing. We're doing the oral and oral art. Right. Right. Yeah. That is is beautiful. And and now I'm going to get to these these closing questions. Okay. But um, I have a special one that I want to start off with. You. Um, so, of course, you know, shout out to the famous Sansere, right? <laughs> the famous. She inspired another question that I have to ask. Ooh. So you were saying how when you were young and you were coming up, New Edition, you know, had had you, you know, under their spell, right? we'll say, right? And right? you talked about how when Sansere was coming up, it was Drake. Indeed. But Drake didn't. However, Drake did not cast his spell successfully on you because you were saying, you don't really, you know, I don't really, I don't see what you see, Sansaray, right? So I was hoping we could get maybe a brief analysis of why New Edition spell worked and Drake's didn't. First of all, we trying to say Drake can hold a candle to New Edition? First of all, get that fixed. Ralph Tresvon, I will never. Jared, Jared P is moving up. I will never <laughs> turn on you, boo. Um, <laughs> look, new edition, new edition, real quick detour. New edition is going back on tour. Like this is like their 40th anniversary. I'm not lying. And I was like almost in tears the other night because COVID is finally over. But I have a, a gig in New York on the same night mm. that they come in. So I can't, I'm gonna miss the show. 
So Ralph, you know, Ricky, call mm-hmm. me. Um, mm-hmm. because you see how I feel about you. First of all, you know, Drake might very well have have you know spun the same spell on me. We're all 12, right? Like what okay. what you know the essay talks about is the fact that mm-hmm. when you are, you know, the music of I saw a tweet the other day that I'm probably gonna butcher, but it's some it's some said something like, you know, the music that you were listening to in middle school is the is the music of your life, right? And so, like, you know, I'm That's coming cool. to new edition as a kid. And then like all through middle school, like these are the boys that really did, you know, teach me, you know, how to pine after love. And the same thing, you know, Sasha Ray's coming to Drake when she's 12. And I'm not saying, you know, Drake don't have some bangers. Cause you know, even I, you know, still got best I never had on my playlist. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not mm-hmm. tripping Drake. You know, I, I understand cool, where coming from. But you know, as a 30, 40 year old, you like, I mean, you know, he begging all the time, but then he's still telling you, you know, bending over backwards to get nasty for someone else. And you know, the machismo, the you know, the really the 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 masculinity, the toxic masculinity is still coming through, even though we talking about, you know, you being <laughs> talking about you being the most sensitive of the rappers. Mm-hmm, right. You know, it still comes through, you know, and I think he has proven that to be the case in the last few months or so. But for her, that will still always be, you know, her boo because it, it came out at the right time. And mm-hmm. new edition, you know, let something bad come out anybody's mouth about any. <laughs> and we going, yeah. and you know, we going toe to toe. Right. No, I just I, I had to ask because I saw it. I was <laughs> like, this is an interesting comparison of, of childhood crushes. So, um, favorite thing you researched that you ended up including in Soul Culture. Oh, what a good question. Favorite favorite thing I researched? Yep. Dang on it. You're going to make me flip through the book. <laughs> Usually, no I can do all this off the top of my head. How rude. That was a great <laughs> question. No problem. Ooh, yeah, favorite thing I researched? Um, <laughs> uh, you know what's really funny? It's probably not the favorite thing, but it's the thing that makes me laugh right now. Um, it goes with our conversation a lot. I'm looking at... Um, Miss Lucille at the beginning of Intimate Tending, but there's a line where I'm talking about, like, as a kid, I used to just shock my parents because I would just say crazy stuff. Um, and my mom used to sing to me. I told my husband one time, my mom used to sing this song to me all the time. You talk too much and you never shut up. And I was like, you know, she even wrote a song for me because I talk so much. And my husband was like, yo, run DMC? You ch- like i had to go and pay like for lines and songs or like lyrics and songs and that was one of the lines i was trying to get i couldn't get it i couldn't get permissions on that line but i did get permission from uh lionel richie for a line from missing you from diana Russell. the music like really the like deep dives i had to go into music and publishing and permissions was probably the worst thing, the worst part of the process, and the best part of the process because it was really word, interesting word. to just see the inner workings and stuff. But I couldn't get the Run DMC, um, the real line, but I got the you know, you can always quote the title, so I got to do that. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and in the event, because I, I already mentioned Soul Culture is like an album, right? So right. I'll ask this in an album like manner, okay? In the event that we have to put out a Soul Culture Deluxe Edition, right? <laughs> um, which poets do you think might have to be on the docket oh my goodness listen there are so many okay we already know elizabeth alexander she got to be up to bat right like so if i if i could elizabeth alexander would be there kwame Dawes, listen 
Mm. Talk about somebody who writes in every genre expansively. He's so rude. He like 40 books in, like he'd be putting out three or four books <laughs> in the year, like running literary journals. And I love him so much, but it's really ridiculous. Leave some for the rest of us, Kwame. I love him. <laughs> um, Kwame would definitely be there. Um, really, like people, like, you know, people that are now my peers who I love dearly, but, you know, who I would love to talk to. Philip, you know, Philip B. Williams would be one of those people. Oh, John Marie, okay. Nicole Steely. Like they, they would be in there. You know, I talk a little bit about Jericho Brown and Ross Gay at the end of the book. I mean, there's so many contemporary poets yeah. that really I love that are doing this, this good work that would be there. And I'll ask this. I'm going to put this in the closer because I just thought of this, right? Mm-hmm. You, you did these interviews over time, yes. right? Yeah. And, and as, you know, people who pre-record a podcast and, and put it out, yeah. I was curious how, I'm curious how concerned you were about time. Um, with this book and whether or not you ever felt like anything ever like aged itself or, or anything like that. That's so interesting. One, uh, I wasn't concerned enough because I was just lollygagging and did not realize like at the beginning of this thing, some of these interviews, for instance, that Avan Jordan interview where he's like, Death Poetry Jam. We did that interview like 2004, 2005. Now, <laughs> who even remembers that that was a thing and like what it did, you know, to the culture in the moment, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and so even that reference, like even some of those references, you know, I, I just didn't think about the fact that, you know, culture moves on, right? And some of those things might not be as clear as they were um, when when authors first said them. Um, and so the, that was one of the reasons that the thing really morphed into a memoir and that the interviews aren't there in their entirety, because some of the things are just kind of older references, but also people continued to work. So, you know, we're talking about their third and fourth book and they're on their sixth and seventh book that ended up being, you know, a huge thing. So some yeah. of those things weren't addressed. So, um, we had to find ways to kind of get at the universal, even though, you know, they were, you know, marked at certain places in time. Gotcha, gotcha. And uh, this is uh, a new question to further closes, but fill in the blanks. Oh. After reading blank, I was changed forever because blank. Ooh, good question. I mean, after reading Lucille Clifton's Quilting, mm. I was changed forever because I realized black women could write about absolutely anything that they wanted to write about, including their own bodies and the failures of those bodies, um, including their fears, uh, familial and otherwise, um, and do it clearly and concisely, uh, you know, with no punctuation and barely any titles. <laughs> so. Miss Lucille could do anything she wanted. There was nothing off limits. And that that told me that there's nothing I can write. Uh, if, I, if I write it well, you know, uh, the Bruce Weigel quote, uh, say it clearly and make it beautiful no matter what. If I write it well, it's worth writing. No, I love that. And I'll, I'll add this before I uh, send it over to Achille, but... Um, I really liked how you, at least for me, you contextualize Miss Lucille Clifton mm. um, by saying she's like essentially the Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. of I love that. Poetry. Yeah. Because yeah. like I, I see like big reverence for, yeah. for Miss Lucille Clifton, yeah. big reverence across the board. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Um, mm -hmm. And I just never, I never realized like why that reverence was what it was. Yeah. But you packaged it so neatly in the work. Ooh. And that was dope. I thank yeah. you so much. It was funny when you asked that question. It was between quilting and Song of Solomon. So that question could have went yes, both ways. I, yeah. That those were the two that were coming back. And really, you know, it's not accidental. You know what I mean? Those are the giants of, of our time. Um, and yes, and their yes. work changes us, you know, for good. Tell us who you would like to see as a guest on Books on Pop Culture. But if you are connected with this person, then you must disclose your connection so we can be connected as well. And then my other closer that comes with this closer is why do I need to read Yusef uh, Komunyaka? Because I've seen that name come up so many times and I've been waiting to have a poet where I could ask that question. Because I know I know Kiyosai went, I believe, to Oberlin because he knew that Yusef was going to be there. And there, there are just references to this mm -hmm. poet everywhere. Yeah. And so if you could, you know, contextualize that, I don't know, elevator pitch on Yusef um, after you tell us who you'd like to see. Absolutely. Well, listen, shout out to black male poets, because the answer to the first question is Tim Siebels needs to be on your show. Yes, I and I can love, certainly love put you in touch with Tim Siebels. Um, but Tim Siebels is, again, we were talking about like just marketability and like one of those poets that I think really he's one of those poets like Patricia Smith. Like if once you hear his work, you realize this is what you're allowed to do in poetry. Um, and also just kind of one of those people who does it all like the best MC who can layer on top narrative and the rhythm. You know, Tim Siebels, uh, you know, his ingenuity on the page is only met by uh, his ingenuity. Like when when reading, like when you hear him read his work. Um, and so also, I just think this is a space that uh, for him, for a black poet who's been, you know, who taught for 30 years and uh, who, you know, um, kind of made his way through contemporary poetry in between those movements, just being here with you two would kind of like just be it would blow his mind. Like yeah. that there, you know, like that there is this community of, of black writers and black, you know, male readers that you know are this in depth like with the work he would he would lose it and i think it would be great to see you guys together and and i got the i got the number i got the email i will put you in touch word, so word. we can do that now uh yusef komanyaka let me tell you um you know um one of my uncles uh, uh hey uncle bobby um, that I love really deeply. And, you know, him and my Shirley, you know, they're my second, they're my surrogate parents. They raised me. They're the reason we were out in Phoenix. He was, he mm -hmm. was stationed at Luke Air Force Base. We moved out there to be with them. So the only other black people in Phoenix. AZ, shout husband, out AZ. Arizona, AZ. <laughs> right? So they're the reason we were in Phoenix. They were out there. Um, you know, he's a Vietnam vet. And so uh, because of that, I was, I was just deeply, I still am just deeply invested in like researching, you know, like what Vietnam kind of did to, yeah. to black men in particular, young black men in particular, um, and then the culture, right? Like what happens um, to the whole of us? Cause you know, we're coming back to families um, in, in very different, a very different state than we left them. Right. Um, and, and so um, when I came to Yusef Komanyaka, um, the poem that you'll find everywhere is facing it, which is a beautiful poem. It's about him standing, looking at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, which if you've ever seen it in DC, it's a black slab and all of these names are etched in, but it looks like a mirror. So you can see yourself as you read these names. And he is a vet who fought in the war 
um, and is reading the names of his friends and um, people that he loved. Um, and for him to distill part of that moment, the, the memory, uh, the trauma, the impact, um, helped me learn something about my uncle that I love really deeply. Um, and then that was one poem. <laughs> Um, when Yusef wins the Pulitzer for Neon Vernacular, um, he is only the third Black poet to ever win. Gwendolyn Brooks mm -hmm. in 1950, yeah. Rita Dove in the 80s, and then finally <laughs> in the 90s, here comes Yusef Komanyaka with Neon Vernacular. That's like a new and selected poems. Um, talk about like rhythm and sound. He's a poet, poet that's deeply connected to jazz. Um, and uh, like expansive knowledge of Greek mythology <laughs> as well. So he's doing all of these things that you think only like, you know, famous white poets are doing, but he's doing it better. Um, <laughs> and so not only that, but he is, I'm sorry. Mm. And so when I, when I read Neon Vernacular, um, it gave me an interesting like sound. It gave me an interesting like uh, voice to frame some of those things. But I would say, you know, if you have any interest in the Vietnam War, any interest in that period, start with his book, Dean Kaidao, which is his book that's all about that experience. Um, and then make your way out because then he just becomes a poet that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger with every life experience. He kind of kind of tacks on, you know, all that he's learned and all that he's become. So read Yusuf Komanyaka. Um, yes, yes. It's an experience. Uh, that is dope and um, definitely just a, a, a dope reflection of your work, too, because like, you know, not not only are you showing like your your writing verb in soul culture, but you're showing your reading verb. Ooh. And, you know, you're you're you know, one thing that I've been saying and embracing more is the act of criticism as an art form. Right. And you show that here in soul um, culture, which is why. You know, if you're listening or watching, you need to get your copy of Soul Culture and preferably from bookshop.org slash shop slash books of pop culture. It's, it's worth your time. You're going to read better. You'll write better. And, and maybe you'll even understand poetry. I mean, maybe you will understand poetry mm -hmm. a little bit more if you're reading how you need to be reading. Um, yeah. Thank you. Ramika Bingham Richard, thank you so much. We appreciate you. Thank um, you. Billy, thank you too, brother. And, um, I was about to say, Akili got to go. He got stuff to do. <laughs> yeah, he do, man. Listen, listen and, Founders Day, are you strolling? <laughs> really? That's what we doing? While, he, while he's doing that, right? I think that's a great way to go out, right? For Ramika, <laughs> for Akili, right? I'm Reggie. Um, this has been another edition of Books of Pop Culture, and we're going to see y'all next time. Take care. Peace. Peace.